Well, good morning. It's wonderful to be back in Big Dallas and wonderful to be at the community church and wonderful to survive the men's retreat yesterday, and so I'm glad to be here. We've had a wonderful time together. Every teacher loves pop quizzes. Pop quiz time. Are you ready for it? Question number one. What do you think is the most frequent exhortation given to us in the Bible? It's sort of in the form of an admonition, which begins with don't. A hundred and seven times in the Old Testament, 42 times in the New Testament. What do you think it is? Don't be afraid. Question number two. What is the only thing about you and your life that's described in the Bible as being precious to God? That's your death. I'm talking about your life. What's the only thing about your life that's defined as being precious to God? More precious than gold. Your faith. I want to take you on a little journey this morning. And we're going to talk about moving from fear... To faith. And what it touches, of course, is the breaking out of the comfort zones where we live so comfortably when God calls us to step up and step out. What is it that makes the difference? Obviously, fear is a pretty general problem, and it's a pretty serious problem. If it's the most frequent admonition that's given to us in the scriptures. And obviously, the practice and exercise of faith is really, really, really pretty special. If it's the only thing that's specifically described as being precious to God. As he looks at your life. So we are going to talk about moving from fear to faith. Breaking out of our comfort zones. It was 1896. After his speech as the Democratic National Convention, a speech that made him three times the candidate of his party for the presidency of the United States, a friend said to William Jennings Bryan, that was a great speech you gave. And the great William Jennings Bryan turned to him and said, well, that convention was my opportunity, and I wanted to make the most of it. And then he reflected for a moment and then turning to his young aide, he said this. And that's about all we do in this world. Lose or use our opportunities. The difference is a factor that's demonstrated to us powerfully in the story that we're going to look at. If you've got your Bible, turn with me to the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 13. And uh, into chapter 14. When you come to these chapters, you're with the children of Israel. They've left the land of Egypt. They've crossed the Red Sea. They've uh, had a stay at Mount Sinai. They've traveled through some desert area. And now they've come to the border of the promised land. They're at a community called Kadesh, encamped at that land. And you perhaps know the story. It's one that we love to tell our children. It's one that as adults, we can never, ever pass by. The spies are sent into the land 
After 40 days, they return. And that's where we pick up the story in chapter 13 and verse 25. It says, And they returned from spying out the land after 40 days. So they departed and came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Then they told him and said, We went into the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey. This is its fruit. What they saw was a good land. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land was strong. The cities are fortified, very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the mountains. The Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the shore of the Jordan. Not only did they see the goodness of the land, but they saw the greatness of the enemy. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let's go up at once and take possession, for we're well able to overtake it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We're not able to go up against the people, for they're stronger than we. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land, which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone as spies, it's a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw the giants, the descendants of Anna came from the giants. We were like grasshoppers in our own sight. So we were in their sight. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried. The people wept that night. All the children of Israel murmured before Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in the wilderness. Why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and children should become victims? Would it not been better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let's select a leader and return to Egypt. That's the majority report. Ten of the twelve spies. They saw the greatness of the enemy, or great, they saw the goodness of the land, they saw the greatness of the enemy, and they saw the weakness of themselves. They're standing on the threshold of the greatest opportunity of their life. Opportunity knocks, and they answer with fear. Then comes the minority report, verse 5. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. Joshua the son of Nun, Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, they tore their clothes. They spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, The land we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. Isn't that interesting? Their perspective on the land was just exactly the same as the majority. It's a good land. Then verse 8. Here's where the difference comes. If the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into the land and give it to us. A land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land. For they are our bread. 
Their protection has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. That's the Minori report. They saw the goodness of the land. They saw the greatness of God. And they saw the weakness of the enemy. So they respond as opportunity knocks. As they answer, they answer with faith. And uh, the majority with fear. Well, who's going to win out? Well, verse 10. Look at the response. And all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Hmm. Fear overcomes the faith. And what's going to be the result of all of that? Verse 23. They certainly shall not see the land of which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of them who rejected me see it. Will they respond with uh, fear or faith? Will they lose or use their opportunity? Well, you see, the factor of whether you use or use the opportunity depends on how, they, how you answer the door when opportunity knocks. When opportunity knocks, if you answer with fear, you're going to lose the opportunity. If you answer with faith, you're going to use the opportunity. Well, it's a simple lesson that comes from our chapter here. It's a simple picture. But it's a very important picture, and it's a graphic picture for us, because um, it's a story of our lives. So let's come to our lives. How do we uh, lose opportunities? Why do we lose opportunities? You have an opportunity for a promotion. You turn it down. You've got an opportunity for a purchase. And you don't take it. You've got an opportunity for a relationship. You walk away from it. You've got an opportunity to share Jesus with somebody. You back off. You've got an opportunity to become involved in some kind of a ministry. You back away. Why? Over and over again, it's fear. It's an unhealthy kind of fear. It's the kind of fear that paralyzes us. It's the kind of fear that marginalizes us. It's the kind of fear that can neutralize us in terms of our Christian life and our journey. That kind of fear. So easy, so common, so dominating, so controlling. That, that kind of fear can be devastating. Now, there's a healthy fear, of course, and we all understand that. You teach your children to fear fire, and you teach your children as they come to the curb to fear cars that are speeding by. That's a healthy fear. What's the difference between a healthy fear and an unhealthy fear? Well, an unhealthy fear is rooted in unbelief. And that's what you've got in our story. This is an unhealthy fear they have. God has promised them the land. God has promised his presence. He's instructed them to take the land. But they're afraid. Now, if you read the story in Numbers 13 and 14, you're inclined to think that that's the end of the story. But it's not the end of the story. Because the New Testament commentary on these two chapters is Hebrews chapter 3, verse 19, which says, And so we see 
they were not able to enter in because of not fear, because of unbelief. So you've got to put the two chapters together to get the picture here. This fear that they have is an unhealthy fear because it's rooted in unbelief. And unbelief breeds this kind of fear, the kind of fear that's going to rob them of the opportunity of their life. It's an unhealthy kind of fear, and it will do it in our lives. It will do it over and over again. This chapter is really, really an important chapter in my life. Some of you will remember the days when I finished my studies at the seminary and um, had been involved in the ministry at Believer's Chapel. And uh, the time to graduate and decide where I was going to go to minister was, was upon me. And I received the invitation to stay in Dallas and to uh, become involved with Dr. Johnson and others in the ministry at Believer's Chapel. I was scared to death. Frightened of death to para paralysis. With Dr. Johnson, with all those smart people at Believer's Chapel, half of them are over here at Community now, scared to death. I was afraid of failure. Uh, I was afraid of being misunderstood that I didn't go back home to Canada where I intended to go. Um, I was afraid of uh, bringing up our children in the United States of America. I was afraid, really afraid. One night we had a church prayer meeting, and it was at the time the church was thinking of moving into a building and moving into the next stage of building a building and so on and so on, and there was lots of stuff that was going on. And Mr. Pryor, one of the elders, stood up and prayed. And in that prayer, this is what he prayed. Lord, help us not to turn back in unbelief. And I sat stunned and nailed to my seat because I saw myself exactly in that situation. Now, I know he was referring to these chapters. Help us not to turn back in unbelief. But it fit my life perfectly. I was standing on the border of the greatest opportunity in my life. An opportunity that a hundred of my classmates would have died for. And I was hesitating. And the reason why I was hesitating is because of fear. Now, fear can be a good thing. Or it can be a very bad thing. And mine was bad. It was a fear that was rooted in unbelief. And I walked away from that prayer meeting, and my life was changed. And I had the privilege of meeting with the priories this week and telling that story to Howard and saying, that prayer that you made and that sentence that you made in the midst of that prayer, and he forgot it, he couldn't remember it, has, has, has influenced and directed my life for the last 50 years. He's shaped my life. That's the point of our story. There's a fear rooted in unbelief that is a very unhealthy kind of fear. And it'll rob you from the greatest opportunities of your life if you become a victim to that fear. I had a young man come to my office a couple of years ago who had been invited to consider the leadership of one of the major ministries in Canada. And uh, he sat in my office. He said, I just need, need your advice. What do you think? 
And so I said to him, well, Bob, why wouldn't you do that? And so he said, well, and he gave me three reasons. Every one of them was fearful. Every one of them. And all of a sudden, my experience from Numbers chapters 13 and 14 came back. And I turned to him and I said, Bob, I want you to hear this sentence now. This is a, this is a critical sentence. Fear rooted in unbelief is never a good enough reason to say no. It's never a good enough reason to say no. Because if you do, you lose an opportunity of your life. And that's the story of some of our lives. There have been times when you've said no, and you've lost an opportunity to share Jesus, to teach a Sunday school class, to become a deacon, to move, to marry, Fear rooted in unbelief is never a good enough reason to say no when opportunity knocks. That's the lesson that comes out of our story. Well, how do we use our opportunities then? Well, the answer from the story, of course, is uh, that we use our opportunities by answering the door when opportunity knocks. We answer the door in faith. That's how, it's resp- that's how we respond to it. We answer in faith. Now, uh, I don't know how you define faith, but I've got a really neat definition of it for you. It comes from Max Licato. He suggests that faith is the conviction that God can and the confidence that God will. Now, I sort of like it because it doesn't end, it doesn't complete the sentences. But it's sort of the idea, faith is the conviction that God can. Well, let's add some things to it. It's the conviction that God can do what he says he'll do. Hmm. It's the conviction that God can do what his character and attributes say he will do. We've been thinking in our early service of the faithfulness of God. Faith is the conviction that God who says he is a faithful God will be faithful. It's the conviction that God will do what he's promised. He will reflect his character. He will display his attributes. It's a conviction that God will do that. And it's the confidence that God will do that, not in keeping with what I want, but it's the confidence that what he does will be right. For the glory of God, for the blessing of my life, for the blessing of the church, for the blessing of the world. Now try that on for size, and you'll discover that that's, that, that's going to give you a handle on something that seems to be so intangible to many of us in our lives. Faith is the conviction that God can do what he says he'll do. And it's the confidence that he will do what's the best, what's right. Put that together. You remember Paul on the journey in Acts chapter 27 on the Mediterranean. Shipwreck in the midst of a violent storm. Looks like everybody is going down. God appears to Paul and he says to Paul, the boat's going to be lost, but no lives are going to be lost. Well, now that's a little bit of a puzzle. How do you put those together? You have a shipwreck where the boat's destroyed, but no lives are lost. Paul steps out. He comes up to the uh, people who are 
heading of the ship and so on, and he calls a little meeting of the bunch, and he says, I've just had a word from God. And he declares what the word is. And then he concludes with these words. He says, and I believe that things will happen just as he told us. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that's faith. I believe that things will happen just as he told us. This is what God said, and faith believes it will happen just as he said. Or take the story of Elizabeth and Mary. She's had the announcement from the angel. She goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth. Elizabeth immediately senses that her cousin is, is pregnant and with a very special kind of baby. And she blesses God. And then it says in Luke one forty five, believing that what God has said, he will accomplish. Now, I like that. That, gi- that gives me a handle on what this faith thing is. It's believing that what God has said, he'll accomplish. And both things fit into it. He's able to do what he has said, and he will do what he has said. That's what faith is. Or take Paul as he reflects on the story of Abraham. 800 years of age, Sarah 90 years of age, God has promised them a baby. They've not had a baby. It sure doesn't look good. But what did Abraham do? He believed, and the text says in Romans 4.20, fully persuaded that God has the power to do what he's promised. Now, friends, that's faith. It's fully believing that he's got the power to do what he's promised to do. And that kind of faith deals with the problem of fear. It demolishes it. It dismisses it. Fear, rooted in unbelief, closes the door to opportunities. It robs us of the privilege of opportunities. When opportunities knock, when we respond with faith, that opens the door and gives us the privilege and the blessings of those kinds of opportunities. You probably have heard of Cassie Griffin. Up in Canada, I introduced them to her. She was the 14-year-old who was gunned down and shot by a gunman who came into the Wedgwood Baptist Church in Fort Worth not too long ago to the youth group meeting, and she was killed. And her father was interviewed on national and international television. What would you like us to know about Cassie? And he had a symbol in his hand, he pulled it out, and he said, this, this frog, that was, that, was, that was her token symbol. She had several of them in her bedroom. She had pictures of frogs around. Uh, frog was it. And so the journalist, of course, curiously said, frog? Why a frog? And Dad said this, F-R-O-G, fully relying on God, 14 years old. That's faith. That's what faith is. Now, it's faith that makes all the difference. When opportunity knocks, you answer with a fear that's rooted in unbelief, and you're going to miss out on the great opportunities that God has for you to make a difference in other people's lives, to make a difference in your community, to make a difference in your church, to make a difference in this world. When opportunity knocks, you answer with faith. You've got the opportunity to make a difference very different difference in all of those areas. So how are we going to do it? How are you going to do it?
Well, let's talk for a few minutes about this subject of faith. You know, it's by faith that you entered into the Christian life. You become a follower of Jesus. You become part of the family of God by faith. Uh, when you understand that you've sinned and you understand that God has sent his son and through the sacrifice of Christ, the forgiveness of sins is now possible. God's demands have been met and satisfied and God can justly come and offer forgiveness and, and he offers that forgiveness if you will just put your faith and trust in Jesus and trust him for your forgiveness and trust him for your salvation. That's faith. And uh, if you become a follower of Jesus, you became a follower of Jesus because you took a step. You took a step of faith and you are trusting him for your forgiveness. You're trusting him for your salvation. You're depending upon that. He is promised, and you're saying, I believe that he is able to keep and do what he's promised, and that he'll do it. That's how you enter into your Christian life. Now, <clears throat> hear me carefully. That's precisely how we're to live our Christian life. The just shall live by faith. Now, that has application, of course, to that moment of regeneration, that moment of salvation. But it also has application to the journey. You enter the journey and you continue the journey. Your Christian life is to be a life of faith. You're to walk by faith. And that starts this afternoon and it starts tomorrow morning at the office and it starts tomorrow morning on campus. And the Christian life is a life that's characterized by faith. Now we need to understand a little bit about this faith because that's the factor that deals with the problem of fear and that opens the doors to use the opportunities that God gives us that knocks on our door. So let me identify a few things about fear. The first thing is that it's quantifiable. In Matthew chapter 8, you have a very interesting situation. Jesus is talking to a Greek centurion and he describes him as a person of great faith. He says, I haven't seen such great faith in all of Israel. In the same chapter, he turns to his disciples out in the middle of the storm-tossed sea, and he says, O ye of... Pardon? Which are you? See, the Christian life is a life of faith. It's a walk of faith. Some of us have very little faith. Some of us have great faith. It's quantifiable. And, and, and God knows exactly where you are on the spectrum. Little faith, great faith. How do, you, how do you get that great faith? Well, that's the second thing we need to understand about faith. And the second thing is that it grows. In 2 Corinthians 10.15, Paul says, Our hope is that your faith continues to grow. My suspicion is that that's the hope of the elders of the church here. That when you come to the church here, that your faith continues to grow. I know if you're a Christian parent with Christian kids, that's what you pray for your children. That their faith will grow. Second Thessalonians 1.3, Paul has a wonderful testimony. He says, your faith is growing more and more. 
That's a great thing for a dad to be able to come and say to his son or daughter after they get married and see the family growing up and them raising their children. Great thing for a mom or dad to be able to say to those growing young kids, your faith is growing more and more. It's evident I can just see it. Well, God can. It it grows. Now, the question is, how does faith grow? Because that's, that's really important in your life. Some of us have been Christians for a long time. And we're not farther along in the spectrum than we were years ago. Where, where, where does God place you along that line? How does faith grow? Well, I want to suggest to you that it's exactly the way you grow physical strength and physical muscles. There are two elements. This is going to become a little convicting to you. Diet and exercise. Okay? Now take that into the spiritual realm. How does faith grow? Diet. Diet. Where's the diet? Well, here it is. This is where I'm going to find out the promises. This is where I'm going to become aware of the character of God, the kind of God he is, and the kind of promises that he makes. You're not ready to faith, faith walk. If you, haven't, if you haven't bound around your heart and mind and put together a package of, of promises... I've got, I've got two packages right here that are part of this message. My three by five cards, I'd, if the fire, house went on fire, they'd be the first thing I'd go for. No, Maryland would be the first thing. They'd be the second thing I'd go for, okay? The promises of God. And so we read the scriptures, and as we read the scriptures, we learn about God and how he works, and the promises he makes, and the kind of God he is. And what that does is it strengthens our faith. It grows our faith. That's why you need to be a daily reader of the word of God. That's how faith grows. But it's not just by reading the scriptures. For me, one of the marvelous contributions to growing faith in my life is reading biographies of good Christian people who have been men and women of faith. It's amazing how that can sort of impact you and encourage you and strengthen you. You read some of those good biographies. That's how, that's how faith grows. And you want, to, you, want to, you want to feed yourself so that your faith will grow. That's, it doesn't just happen. It needs to be nurtured, and it's nurtured through that kind of diet. But it's also growing through, through the exercise, through the practice of faith. And um, some wonderful illustrations of that in Scripture, but also in life. And let me tell you about uh, Hudson Taylor, the China, founder of China Inland Mission, who... Um, had a very difficult life in so many ways. He said, I know he tries me only to increase my faith. Now, that's an amazing testimony for a man to make late in life. I know that God allows things into my life and testing situations into my life. Why? Well, so that as you respond to those, it's like going to the gym and having a bit of a workout. And your faith grows. becomes stronger and becomes stronger. And that's why God allows things into your life, things that test your faith. So that as you respond by faith, the faith grows stronger and stronger. And God is at work in your life. The thing, the thing that really impresses him about you is that faith of yours. And he's committed to seeing it mature and grow. And uh, those are the kinds of things that will help it to grow. The third thing I know about faith is that it's collaborative. Paul says to the Romans, I can't come there, wait, wait to get there, Romans chapter 1, I can't get there, wait to get there, so that your faith will strengthen my faith. 
Be really careful about the friends you choose. Be really careful about the social circle you're engaged in. Do you have people around you that strengthen your faith? Are you involved with some people to whom you can contribute in strengthening their faith? That's how it grows. It's a collaborative kind of thing. It's a verifiable kind of thing. How do I know I have faith? Well, come on now, you know the test, don't you? Bonhoeffer said, he who believes, obeys. He who obeys, believes. One thing about faith is that you can't fake it. Or you can sing about it, or you can talk about it, but you can't fake it to God. Because the test of faith, the thing that verifies faith, is the obedience. Hebrews 11 says of Abraham that when God said to get out, what did he do? He got out. Lovely line. By faith, when God called him, he got out. That's the test of faith. That's the evidence, a verifiable thing. And then there's 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. And that's where he says that the proving of your faith, the demonstration of your faith, is more precious than gold. My wife, we've had four, we have 13 grandchildren, four children and 13 grandchildren, and I just always marvel at how she responds to those grandchildren, little babies, as they start to show some responses. And the one, of course, that's most telling is when the baby starts to smile. And that's when she'll say, Bill, come here, look at, she's smiling. Isn't that precious? I don't really think it's such a big thing. I think it's gas, probably, but <laughs> Marilyn thinks it's a smile, and she's smiling at it. Isn't that precious? I just, I just like to visualize that when you take a step of faith and you just respond to an opportunity, you trust them. You answer with faith. I just sort of imagine the Lord up in heaven calling some angels, say, hey, take a look at, take a look at what's happening there. Or maybe some of your ancestors and predecessors. Take, take, isn't that precious? That's what 1 Peter 1 7 says. It's more precious than gold. If you want to do something that's really precious to the Lord this week, when an opportunity comes along that you've been fearful of, you'd normally reject. You'd walk away from it. You say, that's too tough. I'm afraid. No thanks. Take a step. Break out of the comfort zone. Take that step of faith. And you're going to bless the heart of God. It's, it's, it's precious to him. And then the verse concludes by saying, it will be to your praise and to your honor and glory. And that means it's rewardable. That's what he's going to reward in heaven. That's what's going to be blessed. When you take that simple step, when you take that, when you take that opportunity, that's, that's going to be blessed and it's going to be rewardable. Well, those are the things of faith that I think that are so critical. And I, I present them to you because moving from fear to faith is really growing in the spiritual life. Knowledge is one thing, but faith is something very different. And if all your studying of the scriptures doesn't produce the thing that's precious to God in your life, then you're filling your head for nothing. The purpose is to have that life of yours 
being precious to God and reflecting the characters and blessing of God and being a blessing to people around. And the way you do that is that when opportunity knocks and God gives those opportunities, when opportunity knocks, you simply step up to it and you step out to it and you say, I'm going to trust God. I'm going to take a step of faith. I'm going to obey. Because that's what faith does. Faith trusts. And faith obeys. And it does that as uh, exercising faith. Let me conclude by telling you the story of Marilyn, because you will not have heard this story, and some of you knew her when she was here in Dallas with me, when she was a nice, quiet, submissive wife. Very quiet. She, she did her best uh, working with a small group of ladies, uh, did her best in our home, but she wasn't comfortable with anything public. And she never did anything public. She just said, that's, that's not me. That's my husband. Well, we went to Toronto. We left here and we went to Toronto. And uh, early in the year, after we were there, Tim LaHaye came to Toronto and did a seminar uh, in London, uh, where we were living, did a seminar on uh, Christian temperaments. And in that temperament, he discovered, or Marilyn discovered, that she was phlegmatic, which is a rather quiet and uh, a little more passive compared to her choleric husband. And she discovered that she had a, a phlegmatic personality. And at the end of that whole day, he turned to and he said, some of you are hiding behind your temperament. And Marilyn is obviously listening carefully. And uh, because of that temperament of yours, you've said no to this and no to that and won't do this. And you've, you've been hiding and keeping in your comfort zone. He says, what I, what I want to ask you to do this, this afternoon is I want to ask you to commit yourself not to hide behind that temperament any longer. The temperament that God has given to you is an opportunity for you to demonstrate your faith in God. And so in the quiet prayer time, Marilyn made a decision that she didn't tell me about till next Wednesday. And next Wednesday, she told me about what happened the Sunday morning right after that Saturday. Because the next Sunday morning, a lady came up with her and asked her to speak at the coffee hour in a month's time. And Marilyn said, yes. And on Wednesday, she dared to tell me. She said, guess what I'm going to do in three weeks? I'm going to speak at the coffee hour. I called for oxygen. <laughs> she never said yes before in her life. But she did it. And that night... And became a Christian. Anne's husband was the evening sports editor for the London Free Press newspaper in our city. Anne became a Christian. In a few months' time, Mike became a Christian. That's her husband. Within a year's time of that coffee hour, I baptized Anne, Mike, and their three teenage children, the whole family. And that was because Marilyn dared to step out of her comfort zone and to simply respond to an opportunity and trust God. And God did it. What's the comfort zone that God wants to move you out of? You've been hiding? You've been, you've been quite comfortable there. Thank you. What's the comfortable, comfort zone that you've been hiding in? 
Now, what I want to ask you to do this morning is to seriously consider an opportunity that relates to that comfort zone and taking a step of faith to step out to trust God. Because that's what faith does. Faith trusts God and obeys. Lord, that's my prayer for these good people this morning. It's my prayer for the congregation. It's my prayer for the leadership of the church. And you know that's my daily prayer for Marilyn and myself. And so together we're just again offering ourselves to you, Lord, reminding ourselves of the challenge and the opportunity and the invitation we have as uh, you open doors, as you lay concerns upon our heart, as you give us a, a, a concern and an interest in moving in a direction. Give us that grace, we pray, to simply step out of our comfort zone and to trust. You'll be true to your word. You'll keep your promises. You'll be true to your character. And we know that doing that will be a great blessing to you. Give us the joy and blessing of doing that this very week, Lord, we pray in our Lord Jesus' name. Amen.